we are in our second week of a new sermon series called Intercede. Intercede. Say intercede. We decided it was time to practice what we've been preaching about. We've spent the last few months talking about prayer and the importance of prayer and how Jesus taught us to pray. And uh, and now in As we begin our new year together, we thought it would be well for us as a congregation to pray. Not that you're all not praying. I know you do. You have your own prayer life. But what if we were to unite our hearts together and in prayer intercede on behalf of the same uh, people, the same groups, the same issue week by week? What would that do as it binds us together and how would it turn the hand and the heart of God? So that's what we're doing. We're we're practicing together what it means to intercede as a, a body of Christ. Last week, I asked you to intercede for whom? Do you remember? Right, the Big C Church. The Big C Church, by that I mean the universal church. It is easy to pray for your own needs as a congregation, and we do that, and that's appropriate. But it is easy also for us to become self-centered and to think only of ourselves. When in, fi- in fact, we are part of a larger body of brothers and sisters, millions and even billions around the world who also believe in Jesus, who also affirm the same vows, the uh, same creedal statements as we do together. And so uh, we thought it would be well to begin by lifting up the entire church of God, and we'd start locally. If we can't bring ourselves to pray for HCC in that direction, or St. Nick's down that direction, or, or St. John's right there, or... Believers right over there, or Fox Island right over there, and Harbor Cove somewhere in between, how are we ever going to care about the church in Thailand, or the church in Burma, or the church in Somalia? And I confess to you that this is an area of weakness for me, because I, and frankly, a lot of pastors, are kind of jealous and greedy. We like to hold on to the people that we have. We want to keep those resources to ourselves. And I shared that last week, and literally one woman gasped when I confessed my sin in that regard. Afterwards, she came up to me and said, I'm so sorry I gasped out loud. I said, it's gasp-worthy. Go ahead and gasp. It is, it is sin when all we care about is ourselves. So it is a, it's a thing that's worth gasping at. But I have confessed that. I've laid that before the Lord. And I hope you joined me last week in praying for the Big C Church in this community. And I'm going to ask you to Lift your hands up. Did you, sometime in this last week, did you pray for some other church body in our community? Raise your hands. Awesome. Awesome. And, uh, and I'd invite the rest of you to remember, I think the doors of amnesia must have struck you somewhere as you walked out. And so, please, would you remember? And in these coming weeks, let's pray together. This week, we're going to pray about the nation. I'd like to see the show of hands of anyone who thinks we don't need to pray for our nation. Ah, okay, then can I take that to be a promise that you will, in this coming week, do what I'm going to ask you to do, that we're going to pray together for our nation. This is inauguration week coming up this Friday. It seemed it would be appropriate for us, as the body of Christ, to intercede, to plead to a higher power on behalf of another body. And in this case, it's going to be the body of politics, our people, our nation. So, the text for this morning's message comes from 1 Timothy It's in the latter part of the New Testament. All the T's are together, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus. They're all in alphabetical order, so if you find one T, you're getting close. 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'm going to preach from four verses out of the second chapter. And uh, you can look up there to see it. I'd rather you pull out some device to look at it uh, in your hands. I think it'll help you as we we read through. And, uh, And let's pray that the Lord will really reveal this to us. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. 
First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Take note. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. And so, Lord, would you meet us in this moment as we encounter your word together? We can never understand what it is you want us to say unless your spirit would stir us. Otherwise, we'll be like the watch that James was talking about. It looks good on the outside, but it's, the, it's not the real thing. We want to be the real thing. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, the real thing to be with us now as we consider your word and what, it want, what you want us to do with it. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, I was in Orlando, which was not bad, um, meeting with 24 pastors of the largest churches in our denomination. I was actually invited to lead that gathering, and it was one of those wonderful times when you sit down around a table with a group of men, and when they say, I know what you're going through, you know they know what you're going through, because they're going through it too. So we meet, and we pray, and we share best practices, and it's always a real blessing. But it's also a, a reminder of the, uh, the, the, the sway, the influence that many of us have. There are uh, folks there who are connected in some very significant ways with people in some pretty significant places of, of power and leadership. I was talking to with one man privately who shared with me that he had just been given the cell number for Vice President-elect Mike Pence, and he wanted him to have that so when the vice president called, he would know it was him, and he would answer the call. And the reason was that the, pres- the vice president wants to intercede on our behalf, intervene on our behalf with, for Andrew Brunson, and to help to get him out of prison where he's been unjustly held for these many months. We've been praying for him for so long. And so the vice president wanted to know more about it, and Hallelujah, we continue to pray for that. I got to admit, I couldn't help but being a little impressed that the guy was carrying around the cell number for Mike Pence. Um, and it's, you know, I've never, I, I don't walk in those rarefied uh, climbs. And I'll bet many of us don't either. We don't know what it's like to have that direct dial to, to the White House. Um, the closest I ever got to that kind of connection was in the first grade when um, with my class, yeah, my class went down to... Um, to the Yakima Regional Airport and welcomed Vice President Lyndon Johnson, who landed in Yakima and, and drove out in his limousine. I have no idea why Lyndon Johnson wanted to, to come to Yakima, but there he was, and I was just waving my little arm right out of its socket, and uh, I'm quite certain he noticed me and waved back. <laughs> but that's the closest to, that I've ever gotten to that kind of power. And yet in the text today, Paul tells us that we are actually called to do a very important spiritual work for those who are in the highest places of power. And I want to talk a little bit about that together. The text comes from 1 Timothy, um, and that is the letter that was written by Paul uh, to uh, his young protege. Timothy was in his 20s, probably not much older than many of you. But he was a promising young man, and uh, he was spiritually alive, and, and so Paul gave him more and more responsibility. And when Paul left the, the church in Ephesus, which he had founded, to go on and continue his missionary work, he left Timothy in charge. 
Can you imagine that, being in charge as a 20-year-old of a, of a, a pretty good-sized community in a very important town, which Ephesus was. It was a leading city. It was also going through a lot of problems. They were dealing with idolatry, sexual immorality, false teaching. And Paul says, here you go, Timothy, it's yours. And off he goes. But, um, but Paul didn't leave him, he didn't abandon him. And so he sent letters to check up on his young, his young protege. And this is one of those letters. First and, Timothy two, first and second Timothy are, are those. Written near the end of his life as an old guy. But he's writing to this young man that he believes in and he's mentoring. In, in the first chapter of First Timothy, say, he lays out what he knows to be the situation. He tells him, I know what's going on in that church. I know how complicated it is and how messy it is. But here, I'm going to help you figure it out. And so he comes to chapter 2 and that's the beginning of his counsel as he lays it out. For Timothy, and we read these words. First of all, so the very first thing Paul says, first of all, then I urge that you pray. That's a good starting point. The first thing Paul has to say about all the mess he's dealing with, I urge you to pray. He actually uses four different words. Uh, if you pay attention, they spell the acrostic spit, which isn't very elegant, but it helps you remember. Supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving, spit. He says, I want you to pray. In other words, what he's saying is, I, I want you to pray all kinds of prayers as you are undertaking this ministry. And he says very clearly, I want you to pray these prayers for all people. That word all is used several times in this passage. I want you to offer supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving for all people. I think what was going on here was that, uh, that the little Christian church did what Christian churches also often do, kind of growing in grown, turning its attention inwardly, and it had forgotten that we exist. We exist not for ourselves, but for the mission to the world. And he was just reminding him, I want you to pray beyond your little church, just like we were talking about last week. I want you to pray for all people. That's a very sweeping prayer. It's a little tough to say, okay, I'm going to pray for all people. But it is interesting to notice that of all the people, Paul offers one subcategory, one specific subcategory to pray for. And I wondered if you noticed what that only the one subcategory was. Take a look again. Verse 2. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Of all the people he might have specifically told him to pray for within the rubric of all people, the one thing he specifically mentions is kings and all those in high positions. In other words, leaders. The word that we read in kings would also be translated emperors. And it was, in fact, plural. It was kings and not king. It was emperors and not emperor. And what he seems to be saying is, I want you to pray for the succession of emperors. In other words, not uh, whoever is on the throne right now, I want you to be praying for him. And I want you to just let that sink in for a moment. Think of the succession of of guys who sat on the throne of Rome since the time of Jesus through this moment. It was Caesar Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. These guys were no friend of the Jews. They just weren't. They were pagan worshipers. They worshipped all the pantheon of the Roman gods. But even more than that, 
they were believed to themselves be gods. And, ma- and many of them believed it too, that they were divine. That they were divine. In fact, temples would be built and were, and you can find them today. I could take you to the temple of Augustus. I could take you to the temple of Tiberius and so forth. They would build these great houses of worship, which were intended to, di- to direct worship to them. And so you would go into one of these places, if you were a Roman citizen, and you would burn some incense, and you would pronounce the words, Caesar is Lord. It was a praise. It was a prayer. It was an affirmation of worship. It was an act of worship. Can you imagine how the Jews might have had trouble with that? That, that, that little matter of the first commandment of, you know, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. That little matter of the second commandment, you will not make any idols and worship them. Uh, so, so Jews did not make very good emperor worshipers. And anyhow, they hated the Romans. These were the people that invaded their land, that had uh, stolen their freedom, that taxed them mercilessly, that desecrated their holiest places and their holiest convictions. So when Paul tells Timothy, pray for kings, it was like saying, you know that man that rules the empire, that has crushed you and persecuted you and crucified you by the thousands? Pray for him. And it gets worse. If you consider that succession of of emperors that I just listed, some of them were absolutely hideous, vile human beings. The worst of the worst. Take Caligula, for instance. Caligula executed his son, his grandmother, his father-in-law, and his brother-in-law. And he had an incestuous relationship with his two sisters. And then he exiled them when he got tired of them. He was a sadistic madman who killed for his own amusement. One time during a gladiatorial event, he had his soldiers throw an entire section of the crowd into the arena to be eaten by the wild animals because he had no prisoners to execute and he had become bored with the games. That's Caligula. And then there was Nero, the guy who was sitting on the throne when Paul writes this letter to Timothy. Nero was another piece of work. He, uh, he executed his own mother. He executed his first wife. And then when he remarried and got that second wife pregnant, he stomped her to death. He, he made the Christians to be the scapegoats for the fire that destroyed Rome, and he probably set the fire himself. And for his amusement, he would tie Christians to posts, dip them in tar, stick them in the ground, and light them on fire to provide light in his garden. That was Nero. When Paul tells Timothy to pray for kings, these were those kings. Despicable, bloodthirsty, immoral men. And I can imagine Timothy reading that letter for the first time and saying, Are you kidding me? You want me to pray for Nero? I'll pray for Nero. I'll pray that he has a stroke. (laughs) Right? I'll pray that his palace guard will execute him, will assassinate him, as so many others have before him. That's what I'll pray. But Paul says, no, pray for him. Could we turn our attention to the present day? 
If Paul could tell Timothy to pray for vile Nero, who was the persecutor of Christians, surely it will be clear that we are called to pray for our leader, our president, regardless of what kind of a person he is, regardless of his politics. One week last year, a member approached Pastor Megan and was upset because she had prayed by name for President Obama. Upset because he felt it was too political. It wasn't political. It was biblical. It's what Paul told us that we ought to do when he said, pray for kings and all who are in high positions. And now that the shoe is on the other political foot, we are called to pray for President-elect Trump. And some of you are thrilled to do so, and others of you not so much. And it doesn't matter. Tough beans. We have been called to pray for him, and all who by God's permission and providence have been called to lead this nation. So what should we pray, Paul? Amazingly, surprisingly, he doesn't give a whole list of the sort of things that we should pray for the leaders about, except for one thing. If you were to reread it and read a little further on, you would would find that there's one specific thing that Paul tells Timothy to pray for, for the kings and all those who hold high position. And by the way, it's the same thing they are called to pray for, for the rest of all people. Listen to it again, verse 3. He says this, that is praying, the praying he's talking about, is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What is the ultimate object of Paul's enjoining Timothy to pray? It is that they would come to salvation, that all would come to salvation. The the specific thing that, that Timothy is told to pray for is the salvation of all people and specifically for the salvation of all leaders. I know that Barack Obama went to church. I do not know if he is a follower of Jesus. But we are called to pray for his salvation. I do not know what Donald Trump's relationship is with God. I know that he's a Presbyterian, but I don't know if he has a genuine relationship with Christ. And I don't care how great a deal maker or swamp drainer he might be. Mr. Trump needs to know Jesus. It is a matter of his eternal salvation as it is for every single human being. And if he knows Jesus, and if he grows in his relationship with Jesus, it will make him a better man and a better president. And so we pray that our president will discover the love of Christ and confess his sin and admit his need for the salvation that comes only through Jesus. And the good news is that he is surrounded by followers of Christ. Did you know that Vice President-elect Mike Pence is a devout follower of Jesus? Did you know that the new CIA director who will, be, who will be voted on soon is a faithful and devout member of Eastminster Presbyterian Church and EPC congregation in Wichita? And I know this because I talked to one of his fellow members this last week. Did you know that Rex Tillerson, who is the candidate for Secretary of State, has taught Sunday school in his Baptist church most of his adult life. Even if you are at complete odds with these men politically, is it not a good thing to have people in power who love Jesus Christ, 
who pray that God will guide them in their decisions. And hopefully, when they hear the Holy Spirit, will obey those directions regardless of the cost or the consequences. So we pray. We pray, first of all, for the salvation of our leaders. And Paul tells us that when we pray that way, when that prayer is answered, we will see a consequence that benefits all of us. Again, verse 2. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That word peaceful and quiet life, that would have meant something to a Jew like Paul. Remember, one of their core religious values is shalom. The only Hebrew word any of us know. Shalom. And shalom is way more than not fighting. Shalom means a sense of deep peace, a a deep sense of unity and harmony and mutuality. That's shalom, peace and quiet life. Don't we long for that as a nation? I do not recall a time since the 60s when the whole nation was torn apart over Vietnam, when we have been in greater upheaval and disunity as a nation. It seems to me that the racial divisions are worse than they were. What would Dr. King think? If Dr. King could see what is going on now, what would he think? I think he would weep about this. Racial divisions and religious divisions decay in the inner city. I visited Detroit last year. It is awful. Terrible violence, assaults on law enforcement officers. While I was in Orlando last week, Officer Deborah Clayton, who was by all accounts an apparently wonderful young woman who was working to bring together the police and the community, she was shot down. And as she lay there, she was shot again repeatedly, murdered by a man who said he wanted to be on America's Most Wanted. And... Add to all of this the constant and increasing threat of terrorism, and it is clear that our nation is anything but peaceful and quiet. So we pray for God's salvation to touch our leaders so that God's salvation might touch our nation. Our nation needs saving. And whatever greatness is... Whatever it means to make America great, and I do believe that we are a great nation, surely it will include but extend beyond our own prosperity and self-interest, won't it? We are a nation that has proven its greatness when it laid the lives of over 500,000 young men on an altar of two great world wars, and in so doing saved the world from consummate evil. We are engaged in a similar war today with shadier enemies that are every bit as evil and harder to destroy. So I hope that we desire a peaceful and quiet life, not just for the ghettoized suburbanites of Gig Harbor, but also for the desperate families in Aleppo and the persecuted believers in Somalia as well as the hopeless families in Detroit and in Baltimore and in the murderous south side of Chicago. The United States does not turn its back on brutality and injustice, trying to figure out how to balance our own interests and security against the desperate needs of a world that looks to us for inspiration and leadership is a precarious balancing act that will require God-given divine wisdom.
And so we pray. We pray that God's salvation will touch our leaders. That God will bring together people of common faith and goodwill in the service not only of our country's interest, but of greater humanity. And may I tell you, there are hopeful signs. We have a, a, a member of our congregation, Doug Burley, who is one of our missionaries, and he serves in the D.C. area. His, his ministry is to bring the good news of Jesus to visiting dignitaries and ambassadors and political leaders, not only from our country, but from around the world. And their organization leads the president's prayer breakfast, which is held every February. I called Doug and I said, you need to help me. I'm praying on, I mean, preaching on prayer for our nation. You need to give me some good news. He said, I'll give you some good news. Did you know that every one of those prayer breakfasts is co-emceed, co-chaired by two believers from opposite parties? Every year, two believers from opposite parties stand together as they offer up prayers in the name of Jesus for this nation and for our world. And no, it's no different this year. Senator Chris Coons, a Democrat from Delaware, and Senator John Boozman, who is a Republican from Arkansas, are the co-chairs. And Doug told me that last week, the two of them were invited to Mr. Trump's office, and they spent an hour with him. He was curious about the prayer breakfast, asked many questions, and his promise to come, and, and Vice President Pence as well. In addition to that, there are going to be 25 Christian leaders from Russia who will be coming, and 50 from the Ukraine who were asked by their parliament to be able to come in the hope that all of the division that we're experiencing around the world might be brought to the, to the throne of God in the name of Jesus. Isn't that a good thing? This week, we are going to witness one of the greatest of American democratic traditions. That is the voluntary and peaceful transfer of power from one elected official to the next. Some of you are thrilled about this. Some of you are not. But regardless, we are called to pray for our new president and all who hold high office. I heard someone say that rooting against your president is like rooting against the pilot of the plane on which you are a passenger. Right? It is in our interest and in the world's interest that God hear and answer our prayers on behalf of President Donald Trump and the rest of our political leaders. In your bulletin, you'll find a yellow insert. Would you pull it out and wave it, please, at me? I invite you to take that insert and I want you to use it this week to pray for your leaders and all who are positions of high power. We've suggested a group of, of, in, on each day of, that you might be praying for. And we sent uh, emails to all of these folks asking for their specific prayer requests of how we might pray for them. Those who have responded, we included in this list of prayers. And so I invite you to take that home. And every day, if you will, li- if you will lift that up, including on Thursday, when... Mr. Trump and Mr. Pence will be inaugurated into their office. Second Chronicles 7.14 is probably the most familiar passage when it comes to this topic. You know it. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. 
Our sin needs forgiving. Our land needs healing. And so I invite all of us, young and old, I challenge us to rise above the rancor and the partisanship that has divided our country so desperately in this last year. And I urge us with Paul, as he urged Timothy, to offer up prayers for our leaders. And in fact, I want us to end my message by doing something together. The week of election, before the election had occurred, I wrote a blog. Some of you might remember it. I didn't know, obviously, who was going to be elected, and so I wrote a prayer for that moment. Now that we know who has been elected, I went back and I reviewed the prayer, and I thought, this still deserves praying. So I have adapted it specifically for the new president-elect, and I want to invite us to go to our knees and pray for our leaders for all who are put in positions of high power. So if you are able to kneel, I invite you to join me on our knees as we humble ourselves before the Lord. And I'm going to pray. Heavenly and hallowed Father, as we approach Inauguration Day, when we install the leader of the Western world, we remember that you are the leader of the West and of the East and of the North and South. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. Before you, every knee, every knee will one day bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Nothing catches you by surprise. Nothing can vex or divert you in the fulfillment of your divine purpose for your creation. Forgive us when we place politics over prayer, thinking that our schemings are more important than the prayer of Jesus, thy will be done. And so we pray, thy will be done. In this election, in this nation, in this world, in this generation, thy will be done. Grant that we might trust you and bow before your sovereign will regardless of how our preferences or plans turn out. Soon, Donald Trump will be the president of this land. We pray for him whom you have permitted to take this post. If he is a true believer in Jesus, fill him with your Holy Spirit. If he is not a true believer, surround him by your Holy Spirit and by those who love and listen to you. May he be guided by godly counsel. Grant him supernatural wisdom that seeks what is good and just and right for this land. Make him generous, honest, humble, honorable, compassionate. May he have the courage to do what is in the best for this nation, even if it goes against party or the powerful who would pay for access or influence. May he truly love this land, its rich legacy of faith and liberty and justice and unprecedented opportunity and blessing. May he love that legacy and fight to preserve and promote it. And at the urgings of the Apostle Paul, we pray, if Mr. Trump does not know Jesus, would you save him? Would you bring your salvation to him? 
And we pray that prayer for others of our leaders. We pray for Governor Inslee. If he does not know Jesus, would you save him? If Senators Cantwell and Murray do not know Jesus, would you save them? If Representative Kilmer, if Mayor Guernsey do not know Jesus, would you save them? Would you bring your salvation to our leaders, to the offices of power and influence? For we ask it because you told us to pray that. Now that you have seen fit to install Donald Trump in this office, we pray that through him or despite him, your kingdom will come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.